Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, glad you all are here today. Welcome. Uh, thanks for joining us here for uh, a few moments. And um, as you probably saw on the way in, and you see different members of the staff wearing, uh, today we are talking about uh, Compassion International for a few moments. But before we get there, um, this really has its placement inside of a larger context. And so we mentioned last week that we were beginning a three-week uh, series between uh, Blindsided and Lent. And so just uh, a few uh, short weeks in, in the middle there that we are calling uh, Live It Well and focusing really on three essential behaviors um, that we need inside of our Christian life. And that I've not met anybody who grew and had a healthy Christian walk where these things were not present, nor have I met anyone who built these uh, behaviors inside of their lives that were uh, regretful or not super glad that they did years later. And so these aren't the only three. These maybe not aren't even the best three, but these are three essential behaviors that we want to build into our lives. And last week we made the statement that uh, your life is really marked by the, the people you surround yourself with, your friends determine the direction and the quality of your life, the people you surround yourself with, and the habits that you build into your life. And so those Things that start as behaviors that form into habits, whether good or bad, shape your life just like the people that you allow to have influence inside of your life. And so uh, we would mentioned also last week that uh, from S Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, point number one was um, people who are successful and have quality lives are intentional. They don't wait for life to happen to them, but they happen to things. They're intentional, they're proactive, and so we want to do that with these things inside of our lives. Now, today's statement inside of your bulletin says live missionally. That doesn't just mean, you know, support a foreign missionary or think about the world once in a while, but living missionally means that um, you could really summarize it by saying the other, the other 167. If there's 168 hours in our week, we talked about last week the best moments of your day, uh, so if you take out an hour for church, and if you take out 15 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever it is that you spend in quiet time, maybe you carve out time for another Bible study or a place to serve. Let's, let's say that there's 10 hours in your week that is centered inside of who God is, 10 hours a week. Then we could call it the other 158. If you're only here once a week, and we're glad that you're here, and this is you know the main thing that you do, and you're still checking this thing out and trying to build it into your life, then it's the other 167. But basically, living missionally means the time, the time that you are not here, that you are not involved in something that makes you think about God. Uh, does God, does the person of Jesus Christ continue to direct your life so that every environment that you're in, every relationship that you're in, every context or circumstance, whether you're at work, whether you're driving on the road, whether you're receiving bad news on, a, on the telephone, whatever it is, uh, that we want to live missionally, that who Jesus is makes a difference inside of who I am, inside of each and every circumstance of life. <laughs> Have I gotten your attention? All right. There's something. Are we good? Okay. So uh, um, I'm just going to keep talking, and eventually I'll stop talking, and you can go. So whether you hear anything or not, that's, uh, that's good. So in terms of living missionally, what that means then is that there's a perspective in, inside of my life. There you know, are things that guide who I am, the decisions I make, the, the things that I surround my life with um, that shape the, the decisions that I make. And this is not a new 
uh, concept for us. We've thought about this at least over the past year and a half since I've been here in a few different phrases. We've talked about what it means to be a difference maker. We've talked about uh, that your life works best when you're not the most important thing in it. That you're not meant to consume everything that you have on you. That what you do with what you have demonstrates whose you are. And even just a couple of weeks ago, we talked about that you're meant to live as a means, not as an end. And so inside of that phrase, the ends justify the means or means and ends, your life works best when you live as a means, not as an end in and of yourself. And so this is not a new concept for us, but as we think about these three essential behaviors, I think one of them is that we resolve to be people who live missionally, that there's not a difference between what we believe and what we feel and what we do, that there's no disconnect between uh, that inside of our lives. This is not a money sermon. I know in the end there's shiny faces in plastic containers and for $38 a month you can and it might feel like that, that's the case, but this is not a money message. Uh, in fact, it's way beyond that because I think Jesus says where your treasure is there your heart will be also, but I think it goes the other way that sometimes the things that grab your heart will easily and automatically get your money. But the question is what has your heart and what direction is your heart inclined. So healthy and growing Christians prioritize uh, daily time spent with Jesus. Healthy and growing Christians live in such a way that their life is not all about them, but they live missionally inside of the world. This morning I want to spend a few moments inside the book of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 32, but before we get there, uh, a little bit of background about Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet and uh, inside of your Bible, your Old Testament in particular, but really your whole Bible, is not set up chronologically. Yes, Genesis in the beginning, Genesis is in the right spot, Revelation at the end, but in terms of when things were written or when they take place, your Bible's not necessarily in chronological order. Jeremiah, while he's midway through the prophets, not towards the end of the Old Testament, really is prophesying at the end of the nation of Judah. To give you a little bit of background, roughly, roughly around 1,000 B.C., uh, David becomes king. We've just spent time in the book of Judges, and you move through Samuel and Saul, and then David, right around, somewhere around 1,000 B.C. Following him is his son uh, Solomon, becomes king. After Solomon, the kingdom splits, and you have the nation of Israel to the north, uh, with Jeroboam as their king. The nation of Judah to the south, with Rehoboam as their king. Two kind of sister countries, but distinct. A split begins to take place after the time of Solomon. So from that period forward until right around 722 B.C., you have north, south, Israel, Judah. Eventually the rebellion and the sin of the, the people in the north in Israel uh, leads to the point that God gives them over in judgment. And so the Assyrians come in, they take over the land of Israel in the north, and uh, that nation is no more. Judah goes on for about another 150 years, and in 587 B.C., so again, just a little over 400 years after David, now Judah is no more. The Babylonians come in, they, they conquer, they flatten Jerusalem, they disperse people because the best way to ensure against a future rebellion is let's break them up, let's split them up, let's mix them. And so from 587 B.C. to the time of Jesus, uh, there is no nation of Israel and of Judah. 
Israel is a conquered land by the Babylonians and then by the Persians and the Greeks and then the Romans. And all this takes place in the time leading up to Jesus. And so Jeremiah is the weeping prophet because he is doing two things at the same time. He is pronouncing God's judgment. We've acted poorly. We've acted inappropriately. We've acted sinfully. God is going to judge our nation, and there's going to come a time when the enemy is going to come right up to the brink of our city, attack our city, carry us off, and we will be no more. But, statement number two, that's only going to be for a short time because after 70 years, God's going to bring us back. This word of prophecy did not sit very well, particularly with the leaders and the kings. There were five different kings that were in power during the time of Jeremiah's ministry. None of them liked him very much. He spent time in and out of jail or on house arrest. And so because of that, he is this voice who's crying out for the people of God to listen that has both this judgment and also this promise attached to it at the same time. If you've spent much time in the book of Jeremiah, you probably know and treasure two different verses. The first is Jeremiah 29.11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Interesting that 29.11 is memorized and quoted and it's up on mirrors and, you know, just screenshots and places that we see it. But if you read on from there, basically what he says is, we're about to be judged and carted off, but after a while, we're going to come back. And so if you've ever quoted Jeremiah 29.11, I'm not going to say you've done it wrong if you've done this, but if you've quoted it about yourself, you've taken it a little bit out, out of context. Because the hope is, yeah, God's going to give us hope in a future, but it's really for your grandkids and your great-grandkids that are really going to experience it, not necessarily you. We also love Jan, uh, Jeremiah 31 that talks about in those days, so in the coming of Jesus, I'm going to write my law in your minds and write it on your hearts, and you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. And this tremendous verse that points to uh, the coming of Jesus and what that means on the page of history. But again, it's pointing, at this point, hundreds of years out. So Jeremiah has this word of judgment and yet also the promise of God at the same time. You come through chapter 29 and 30 and 31, and then you come to uh, what could be perceived to be a boring chapter in chapter 32 that I want to read just a section for you because I think it's significant inside of the ministry of Jeremiah, his personal faith and walk with his God, and yet also for the future of the people around him. Jeremiah 32. This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which was the eighteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar. We have here dated, this is 587 B.C., this is the year that Judah is going to fall, that Jerusalem is going to fall, and that the people are going to be carted off. The army of the king of Babylon was then besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was confined in the courtyard of the guard in the royal palace of Judah. He's there kind of under house arrest. He still has the ability to write and, and to speak and to do things, but he is not free on his own. Now Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him there, saying, Why do you prophesy as you do? You say, this is what the Lord says, I'm about to give this city into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will capture it. 
Zedekiah, king of Judah, will not escape the Babylonians, but will certainly be given into the hands of the king of Babylon and will speak with him face to face and see him with his own eyes. He will take Zedekiah to Babylon, where he will remain until I deal with him, declares the Lord. If you fight against the Babylonians, you will not succeed. Jeremiah said, the word of the Lord came to me. Hanamel, son of Shalom, your uncle, is going to come to you and say, buy my field at Anathoth, because as nearest relative, it is your right and duty to buy it. Skipping down to the end of verse number 9, I knew it was the word of the Lord, so I bought the field at Anathoth for my cousin Hanamel and weighed out for him 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed, had it witnessed and weighed out the silver on the scales. I took the deed of purchase, the sealed copy containing terms and conditions, as well as the unsealed copy, and I gave this deed to Baruch, son of Neriah, the son of Mahizai, in the presence of my cousin Hanamel, and of the witnesses who had signed the deed, and all the Jews sitting in the courtyard of the guard. In their presence, I gave Baruch these instructions. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, take these documents, both the sealed and the unsealed copies of the deed of purchase, and put them in a clay jar so that they will last a long time. For this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says, houses, fields, and vineyards will again be bought in this land. And everyone was inspired to go out and do something with what they just heard, right? Now, it's, you read this, and it comes in the middle of the prophecy where, you know, we've already heard, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. I'm going to write my law in your heart. Uh, you're going to be my people, and I'm going to be your God. Oh, but by the way, we have this period of time taking place that you are not going to be your own people. But I have a promise, one day, 70 years from now, houses and fields and vineyards will again be purchased in this land. Jeremiah puts his money where his mouth is, but it seems to be a foolish purchase. I mean, imagine with me just for a little bit, if your cousin comes pushing in a vehicle onto your property, you're pretty sure it's stolen or it's about to be repoed tomorrow. It's not running very well because he's pushing it in. There's duct tape actually holding the bumper together. And he invites you and wants to give you the privilege as his cousin to buy it for full price. What a guy. You know, we, we all, and by the way, you're all thinking of relatives that would do that kind of thing. But, you know, that's, not, that's a different sermon for a different time. Um, that's the equivalent of what's taking place here. Is why in the world would you buy a piece of property when you can see the Babylonians on the other side of the, of the wall? You yourself have been the guy who's been saying bad things are going to happen. The Babylonians are coming in. We've done wrong in, in the sight of our God and this land that is ours, this temple that is ours, everything that God has given us. It's going to have like this temporary hiatus and we're going to be carted off. All of your good news points to the fact that it is 70 years later. We don't know how old Jeremiah is, but most likely he will not be breathing in 70 years. He knows that. So why do you buy a piece of property that's about to be worthless? Who knows when you come back in 70 years if the person who occupies it is going to leave or the status of what's going to be there and what's going to take, take to place. But I believe a picture, a word picture for us of what it means to live missionally 
is that we are people who seek to buy fields in conquered lands. In other words, you speak into that which is declared worthless, that there's value. You speak into places where there doesn't appear to be a future, that there is a future because of who God is. You speak into places where there is no hope, that there is hope because of a God who steps out from outside of situations in and breathes hope and life. The behavior is to live missionally. Do you know when you leave here, there is signs at the end of the parking lot that said you're now entering the mission field. I've talked to a few people, not here, but nationally, who talk about that and say they don't like those signs because it gives the impression that in here we have our, our little holy huddle and we have it all together and out there are all the bad people. And the reality is we are the mission field as much in here as it is out there. But what I do like about those signs is it means that there's something about the other 167. There's something about the other 153 if you're a super Christian who's here 15 hours a week or engaged in your faith 15 hours a week. There is something about what takes place in the other 167 that defines who you are more than what you do in the one, as important as the one is. Like Jeremiah, we're called to be people who purchase fields in conquered lands, to speak words of hope and words of value and words of life, and not just to speak it, but we demonstrate it with our actions. I could have summarized this story for you, but instead I decided to read it because inside of the logistics of all of it, that there, there are deeds and it's taken and it's sealed and it's signed and it's put inside of a, uh, of a clay pot and it's going to be buried in the ground and inside of all this interaction between Jeremiah and his cousin and the people who are witnesses and then Baruch, who's kind of like Jeremiah's personal assistant, and it's buried in the ground because this is going to be a testimony that's going to live way beyond Jeremiah that I believe in the promises of my God. To live missionally. I see this at St. John's all over the place. This is not, again, a new concept for us. That God is at work the way in which you give, the way in which you offer yourselves, the way in which you serve, you invite people. You're engaged in, inside of going and praying for world missions and for things outside of your own context. You don't want your relationship with God just to be the thing that takes place in the one hour or even in the 10 hours, but in the entire 168 hours of your week. This morning, I think we just need to be reminded of this again, and maybe it's a new opportunity for some of us, but for most of us, it becomes a reminder about how we want to live. A statement that I've used, and you're going to get sick of me saying it, is this is the person that you want your child to marry. This is the boss that you want to work for. These behaviors that you see, you want people to live this way, even if sometimes it's difficult for you and I to live this way. This morning's Compassion Sunday, but I think it's bigger than that. I think the invitation of the morning is to be people who live missionally. One of the ways we do that, though, is by engaging outside of just what we see and what we know and what we experience and becoming people who are engaged worldwide. The mission statement of St. John's is to connect people with God, each other, and the world. And the world is, is that purpose you know, that God has built into your life, but I think the world is also the world. And to be concerned for situations outside of our own immediate context. Do you know that 11 children under the age of 5 die every minute? And about half of them 
uh, because of or as a result of malnutrition. The undernourished who do survive go on to live lives that are more prone to disease and to disability and to stunted growth and, and things taking place inside of uh, their lives physically because of malnourishment. It's estimated by 2025 about half the world's population will have inadequate or unclean or difficult water supply inside of their life. It's interesting that we're making progress in terms of food and feeding people, and yet the water problem seems to be growing. Compassion International uh, steps in amongst the poorest of the poor to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. It's not just a humanitarian organization to release people from poverty, but it takes place through the local church. And, and one of the things that we learned when, when I was there in Guatemala is you have your global partners who are largely from the Western world. Uh, takes taking place through a, a field office inside of a country, but then everything is centered through the local church. There are no Compassion International missionaries. When I got to Guatemala, there was no American guy who was there who runs Compassion Guatemala. It was run by Guatemalans in and through local churches where the gospel is centered, but also coming alongside of and caring for children to release them from poverty. release children from poverty in the name of Jesus. I want to talk a little bit more specifically about what compassion and compassion sponsorship looks like, but first uh, check out this video uh, from some alumni. In the Philippines, it's so smelly, very dark water. You can see trash rats, all of the crimes. The friends that I played with in the neighborhood got captured and was being trained to become child soldiers. In a given week, we'll go at least for three days without food. We would beg our parents just to buy one apple, but even the rotten ones we could not afford to buy. I just want to taste it. I just, just want to eat the fruit. In a period of 18 months, I lost my small brother Patrick, my mom, and I lost my stepdad because of the terrifying disease of HIV AIDS. When my mother died, I was lost. I was looking for hope, for God to just show me that everything was going to be okay, not knowing what tomorrow will look like not knowing whether I would have a home, whether we would live to see the next day. I don't know why Aaron Mitchell decided to sponsor me, but when he did, my whole life changed. A group of people from Compassion showed up at my church. They said, you're gonna go to school, and then somebody's going to write to you. I don't have to worry about whether my parents would have enough money to keep me going to school. Even if I get sick, someone was there to take care of me. I felt safe. I felt wanted. My sponsor is Edwin Bunny. Maria and Hanshu. Aaron Mitchell. 
five women from a Lutheran church that were sponsoring me. I am now a physical therapist and I'm working in a hospital. Clinical social worker. I was the first child in my family to go to high school, to go to college. I have a bachelor and a master in, in, in biomedical engineering, second master in engineering management and uh, that called me into ministry. So I had to go and get a third master. I have a ministry called Youth Arise Africa that works with boys who don't have father figures. We opened a small school. It's now providing the same opportunity that Compassion provided to me so that they too can break out of the cycle of poverty. Whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. You do for me. You did for me. You did it for me. Sponsor a child today to break the cycle of poverty in a child's life like my sponsor did for me. So child sponsorship through compassion. First of all, every child is paired with a sponsor. You have the opportunity to write, to know, uh, to even visit your child. Compassion uh, is known as being one of the most transparent organizations in terms of both uh, matching uh, donor to child in a um, specific and direct relationship, uh, but also that the majority of the funds that are given, uh, such a high percentage goes to what you actually give towards compared to uh, most charitable organizations. Your $38 goes to, towards food, uh, clean water, medical care, educational opportunities, life training, biblical discipleship uh, poured into that child. And again, I know that you've seen the commercials. You've been up late. You've seen those commercials that tug at your heartstring because there's a little dog walking across or whatever else. Uh, but so it's not a gimmick. I mean, $38 U.S. goes far uh, inside of places where the average income might be $40 a year. Your $38 a month makes a difference and goes uh, to you know the, the vast majority of it uh, right into that local center and to that uh, child. Uh, child sponsorship works. They estimate that, and it's different from country to country, but anywhere from 50 to 80 percent uh, more likely to graduate from college. Uh, compassion sponsored children versus other children. 35 percent more likely to get a white collar job inside of their communities. 30 to 75 percent more likely to be community leaders. Compassion, uh, that is the work that takes place around the world, again, centered through uh, local churches. I want to, uh, when I had the chance to be in Guatemala, I want to tell you two specific things before we close. Uh, the one is my impressions in general, and then the second is about uh, the child that we sponsor, Alejandro. And the first thing is when we went and toured a couple of the facilities just to see uh, there was the job training that was taking place. I saw a 13-year-old boy with a straight razor shaving another 13-year-old boy's head. Now, you would hear that all across the news in the U.S. if that happened, but that was, that's job training right there on the grounds in in Guatemala and just to see that they are uh, proactive about not just the, the education and the physical needs but and the job training, but then even beyond that, uh, the spiritual needs. Again, these projects are all local church-centered. And so uh, the second day we were there, we were part of this community, and, and they wanted to sing a song for us, but this was not a performance song. This was they wanted to lead us in worship. I'm told that the the song that they were singing was Chain Breaker. It's not the Chain Breaker that you're used to singing, um, or at least the translation is way off and I can't sing along with it, but I want you to uh, listen. This I'm 
very bad on the phone recording, but this is my recording of these kids who are leading us in worship in Guatemala. experience and, and it went on you know for a while and it was just awesome to see the kids not just sing but to worship and uh, to witness what was taking place there I think I, I have a picture one of the you know, two other things I wanted to talk about in terms of that local church partnership the picture to the top left I don't know if you can make out all of it there but in the left corner are manila envelopes those are stacks of letters that come from each of the individual centers to the Guatemala home office Letters that children have written that need to be translated into English and then sent out uh, to the U.S. The stack over to the right, the white stacks of paper are letters that are being translated to go to the centers. About 10,000 letters a month they process in the Guatemala office alone. Many more of them from child to sponsor than from sponsor to child, but that's something we all can get better at. Um, but that kind of interaction... You hear people over and over again talk about the, the importance of the letters and how much they were just as important as the money that was given was somebody who believed in them and partnered with them and loved them, uh, who pictures were colored or words were sent, pictures and words of hope and verses of scripture inside of that relationship. So outside, uh, the doors here on the table, there are packets. These are actual children uh, from actual communities. Uh, needing to be sponsored. There is only one card per child, so if these children are not, not sponsored, eventually this card expires, and then they'll print a new one, but it's not like some church in California has the same kid out there today. Uh, they, You can see right on the front uh, the age, uh, the gender, and the country of where the child is from. I know it's a little bit weird sometimes. You feel like you're browsing for grapefruit or something like that, and you pick up one, put it down, like, you know, these are people's lives, but I want to invite you, just go out there, take a look at some of the cards, and consider whether or not uh, Compassion Sponsorship is for you. Again, today is not simply about selling Compassion International, although it's a wonderful program, my life has been blessed uh, through it, but we want to be people who live missionally, and sometimes that means we're going to be people who purchase fields in occupied lands as a statement of hope, as a statement of future, as a statement of value. So uh, there will be people out there, you can fill this out and just put your, your banking information right in and send it, and it just starts automatically. You can send a check. You can even just fill this out and send it, and then they'll send you information about payments and, and how to set all that up. Uh, but we want to make this available today. So uh, the bottom picture is a family that I met in Guatemala, but person I was most excited to meet on the next couple of slides. Um, oh, sorry, one more slide. These are, there we go. The last slide were two graduates of the program that we had just the awesome opportunity to meet and interact with. But on the last day, we were there, I got to meet Alejandro. And Alejandro just turned five uh, two weeks ago. He's been our compassion child now for just about a year and a half. I think we got him when he was three and a half. And uh, they traveled, they brought him about an hour and a half from his site to visit us where we were. Uh, we spent time together, but 
how much time can you really talk to a four-and-a-half-year-old, especially through a translator? So we talked some, but we also went to a chocolate museum, and we made chocolate together. Um, you know, you kind of get in, you know, putting it in the molds and everything, and he wanted to share his chocolate with me, and, I'm, you know, I was like, well, but that was good. It was, it was fine. Um, it was okay chocolate. It, it was decent, but we had just a great time together. We went and had lunch, and um, I talked, though, more with his mom and then with the director of the center, who had both come with him. And she talked about the hope that she had for her son that he would have a different life than what she had. She already could tell, this is a kid who was four and a half years old, uh, the impact that the center had made inside of his developmental life, his social life, and even his spiritual life and the things that he was learning about who Jesus Christ was. Um, I come home with pictures, but I'm sure he goes home with the memories of meeting someone who believes in him, uh, who is actually putting his money where his mouth is to ensure that there's hope and that there's a future and that there's value that's communicated. Um, I love being a part of what Compassion International is doing. There are other phenomenal organizations out there. There are other places. Maybe the takeaway for you is, you know, you've been involved in Feed My Sheep and you're going to continue to redouble your efforts to be involved there or to do something else or wherever it is that God is laying on your heart. We want to be people who live missionally. And oftentimes that means we purchase fields and occupied lands to demonstrate the reality of the gospel and who Jesus Christ is. There's an old preacher story. You may have heard it 25 times, or it may be so old that it's new again. But the story was of a little girl who was down on the beach, and it was after about a, you know, six or eight hours after a large storm had come through and there were starfish all across the beach. And the starfish that were there, there had to be thousands, if not millions of them. And she was out there, this little girl, and she would pick one up and she would throw it out into the ocean. And she was doing this over and over again. And, and a man who was walking with his wife came walking along, and they're noticing this. And at first it was cute, but then it began to annoy the man a little bit. And he said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm throwing them back into the ocean so that they won't die. He said, there's thousands of them. How can you possibly make a difference? She hung her head for about 10 seconds, but then she picked one up and threw it back in and said it, it made a difference to that one. And she picked up another one and said it made a difference to that one. And she kept doing that to the point that the man found himself, maybe he was just shamed into it, but he picked up one and threw it back in also. Living missionally is not about solving all the world's problems. It's not about making sure that the most toxic person inside of your life is all of a sudden better, that you have to take on everything. But it means that with the time that you have, the resources you have, the abilities you have, and where God is prompting and working inside of your life, we're going to be faithful in the other 167, not just in the one hour of our week. To live and to give our lives away, something beyond ourselves, for the sake of the one who has called us to purchase fields and occupied lands, that we are people who speak value to the valueless. We are people who speak hope to the hopeless. And we are people who speak a future when it seems like everything is desolate and not going anywhere. That's who I want to be. That's the kind of church I want to be. Maybe compassion is part of that for you. Maybe God is moving something else uh, in some other specific way. But my prayer today is that God moves us all to be people who live missionally because I've never met anybody who has regretted living this way inside of their lives. Let's pray together.
Father, I would 